Hey everyone, this is Adam Ellenboss from Nightlight Astrology, and today we are back to take another look at this weekend's upcoming eclipse in the sign of Taurus. This is a lunar eclipse happening on October 28th here of 2023, and today we are going to look at a passage from Liz Green's book, The Astrology of Fate, from a section called The Myths of the Zodiac, in order to illuminate uh, the mythology of the sign of Taurus. What are the archetypal dimensions of this sign that may be relevant to us as we go into an eclipse weekend with the the moon, the lunar eclipse in the sign of Taurus. So that's our agenda for today. Before we get into it, don't forget to like and subscribe. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections as we're approaching this eclipse, especially reflections on what you've learned from the Taurus eclipses over the past year and a half. Uh, if you want, you can find a transcript of today's talk on the website, nightlightastrology.com. When you are over there, do not forget that we are in uh, promotional mode right now for my upcoming class, Ancient Astrology for the Modern Mystic. If you click on the courses page and go to the first year course, you can learn all about it. It starts on November 18th, so it's coming up really soon. We still have uh, spots available with the need-based tuition. I'll go over that in a minute. Uh, we are also having some alumni come on this week to talk about the program and more in general about astrological education um, and astrological learning and what what makes ancient astrology a little different from other forms of astrology um, not better or worse just what makes it what's what's make it what it, why is this so unique ancient astrology really completely grabbed my heart my mind my soul uh, when I started studying it because of how deeply it gets into the question why where did this come from why did it ever come to be a thing what did ancient astrologers believe where does the idea of a sign a house the planets aspects where does it any of it come from what's the underlying philosophy if you understand the why you have a powerful tool that can help you to utilize all of the craft elements of astrology intuitively personally it comes from you it doesn't come from memorizing techniques in fact there was an astrologer named Firmicus Maternus who was writing a letter to students of astrology. And in it, he said, if you have been transformed inside through your consciousness by this subject, that will make you more successful than having memorized all the techniques in our textbook. And that's really in my, um, in my humble opinion, that's what makes this program so good is that we're, we're, we're trying, we have tried uh, over the years to, make a program that is better and better and better. We've refined it and made it better every year. And better at what? Specifically at helping people have a transformational experience while studying and an experience of the why behind everything that gives you a personal sense of ownership and freedom um, when you're actually looking at charts. Uh, and that's, to me, that's that's the most magical thing that ancient astrology has given me personally. And I know that uh, you'll be excited when you study it and, and learn about it. Anyway, there's 30 classes on the year. We break out in between sessions and you have optional tutoring groups you can attend uh, with our staff. We have interactive group forum discussion led by staff. We have a bunch of guest teachers that come in outside of our major curriculum. There's a ton of bonus material. There's a workbook. There's optional quizzes. There's an optional certification exam for people who are interested in trying to make this uh, a professional practice. We have three years worth of curriculum plus an extra year of horary curriculum. So there's a lot of material here that we have for people who want to go professional. Um, the early bird payment saves you $500 off. There's a payment plan if you want it. And the need-based tuition. The need-based tuition is for people who want to study. They're like, I want to dive into this, but I have budget restrictions. 
And whatever the case is, we think that people who can afford it will look and say, I can afford that. And people who say, I want to do this, but I can't afford it for X, Y, and Z reasons, um, will use the tuition assistance. And we've trusted people to be discerning and not take advantage of that. And we have had seen really good results over 13 years of doing this. So if you are in need of a little bit of help to make it happen, use the tuition assistance and uh, we'd be glad to work with you and uh, make sure that no one's priced out of studying a sacred subject. Okay, well, that is our, uh, those are our promotions for today. So let's go ahead and review on what we're actually looking at before we talk about the eclipse. We have an eclipse coming up on the 28th of October, that is this Saturday, in the sign of Taurus. It's a lunar eclipse, an exalted lunar eclipse. Lunar eclipses are always full moons. And this one is moving into uh, conjunction with Jupiter. Jupiter and Uranus are co-present. It's opposite Mercury and Mars in Scorpio. So one last eclipse across the Taurus-Scorpio axis. We talked about the history of these eclipses in yesterday's video. So if you haven't watched that, I would recommend going back and starting there. Today, what I want to do is... I want to talk about the, the tensions, the archetypal mythological tensions that are inherent in this sign. And there's not just one set of world myths that belong to this sign. This sign is speaking to an archetypal dimension of life that people in all different mythological traditions all over the planet have talked about for thousands of years. So these are just examples uh, that come from the Greek tradition mostly. But at any rate, um, now settle in, grab some popcorn if you're... Uh, if you're watching in the evening, I guess. Um, I don't think popcorn is very good first thing in the morning. Although there is an argument to be made about stale popcorn left over. Like if you just leave a bowl of popcorn out overnight, I know it sounds gross, but like, I don't think there might, there might not be anything I love more than a bowl of like, like one night left out popcorn. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> anyway. So Taurus, this comes from Liz Green's book, The Astrology of Fate. Liz Green is one of considered one of the modern masters of psychological astrology and uh, studied with uh, Carl Jung um, and uh, James Hillman. And she is um, she's just a profound writer and had thousands and thousands of clients uh, as a psychological counseling astrologer and is really famous for being um, having a really deep and uh, nuanced understanding of um, ancient mythology and its relation to the 12 signs and the planets and so forth. So here's what she has to say about Taurus from the section of her book in the Astrology of Fate called Myth and the Zodiac. It's about four pages long, so you're, you know, just sit back, enjoy. And then afterward, I'll, I'll, I'll give my own reflections as an honorary member of the Taurus Rising Club. Mother of God, no lady thou, common woman of common earth. That was Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. Three different mythic bulls claim the honor of being associated with Taurus. One is the white bull that carried Europa from her home in uh, Tyre to Crete. And excuse in advance any of my mispronunciations. This bull was Zeus himself transformed into animal form for the usual purpose of abducting or seducing the woman of his choice. The second is a cow rather than a bull, the animal form of Io, another of Zeus's paramours, whom Hera in her jealousy turned into bovine shape. The third and most famous is the Cretan bull with which Pasiphae, the wife of King Minos of Crete, fell in love and which fathered the monstrous minotaur that the hero Theseus had to kill. 
We will consider the symbolism of the bull itself and of cow-eyed Aphrodite Venus, the planetary ruler of Taurus, in due course. But first, let us begin with the story of the Cretan bull, which seems to have profound bearing on Taurus's fate. King Minos was the son of Europa and Zeus, himself the child of the god-turned-bull. He was king of Crete and wielded great power from his island seat over all the Greek islands and parts of the mainland. When young, he contended with his brothers, Radamanthus and Sarpedon, for the throne and asserted his claim by divine right. He prayed to the god Poseidon, lord of the sea and of earthquakes, to send a bull out of the sea as a sign, sealing this prayer with a vow to sacrifice the animal immediately as an offering and a symbol of service. Poseidon, who is also portrayed in bull shape, complied. The beast duly appeared, and Minos took the throne. But when he beheld the majesty of the beast, he thought what an advantage it would be to possess such a creature in his herd, and risked a merchant's substitution, which he supposed the god would not notice or mind. Offering on Poseidon's altar the finest white bull that he owned, he added the sacred sea bull to his herd. Poseidon, however, was not amused at the substitution. He retaliated at the blasphemy by enlisting Aphrodite to inspire in Minos's wife, Pasiphae, an ungovernable passion for the bull. She prevailed upon Daedalus, the celebrated artist-craftsman, to make her a wooden cow in which she might receive the bull in sexual union. Daedalus performed the work, Pasiphae entered the cow, and the bull in turn entered Pasiphae. Of this union was born the Minotaur, a hideous monster with a human body and bull's head, which fed upon human flesh. Minos, in his fear and shame, hired Daedalus to construct a labyrinth in which the foul creature could be hidden, and into which groups of living youths and maidens were left for the Minotaur's meals. The primary fault in the story, sorry tale, lies not with Queen Pasiphae, but with Minos himself, although the queen acted out the fate he invoked. About Minos's flaw, Joseph Campbell writes, Quote, he had converted a public event to personal gain, whereas the whole sense of his investiture as a king had been that he was no longer a mere private person. The return of the bull should have symbolized his absolutely selfless submission to the functions of his role as king. The retaining of the bull represented, on the other hand, an impulse to egocentric self-aggrandizement. And so the king, by the grace of God, became the dangerous tyrant holdfast, out for himself. Just as the traditional rites of passage used to teach the individual to die to the past and be reborn to the future, so the great ceremonials of investiture divested him of his private character and clothed him in the mantle of his vocation. By the sacrilege of the refusal of the rite, however, the individual cut himself as a unit off from the larger unit of the whole community. And so the one was broken into the many, and these then battled against each other, each out for himself and could be governed only by force. <clears throat> Campbell goes on to describe this figure of the tyrant monster who is common in fairy tales, the hoarder of the general benefit, the monster avid for the greedy rights of my and mine. It is so interesting to note that Hitler was a Taurian, as were Lenin and Marx. So is Queen Elizabeth II, who seems to have understood to a remarkable degree the deeper meaning of her investiture as queen and remains a symbol of stability and moral firmness for the whole of the United Kingdom. Now, that's her opinion, of course. By the tyrant monster of which Campbell writes is the challenge of Taurus, its dark face, which must at some point be met in life. The earthy power which allows the tyrant to accrue his wealth as Minos gathered wealth and power over the seas is the gift of Taurus. But the dilemma lies in his relationship with the god and which god it is he serves, the deity or himself. 
The story of Minos ends in a stagnant situation where a destructive monster lies at the heart of the apparently abundant realm. This situation of stagnation leads inevitably to the coming of Theseus, the hero who must release the deadlock. It is a characteristic irony of myth, which we have already met in Ares, that Theseus, who, like Minos, is a king and divinely fathered, is the child of the bull god Poseidon. The creature which he must confront at the heart of the labyrinth is the dark bestial form of his own spiritual father, as well as the symbol of Minos' sin. Thus Minos, his minotaur, and the hero Theseus are bound by the same symbol of the bull, for they are aspects of the same archetypal core. And Minos and Theseus are in a sense doubles of each other, for one commits the sin against the god while the other must redeem it. But what is the bull, the symbol of power which must be dedicated to the god? We have seen in the imagery of Ares that the ram is connected with the hidden god, with phallic power and potency and the omnipotence of the father. The bull is an altogether different animal. He is not fiery, he is earthy. And while he is connected with the fertility of the earth, this is not the same as the fertile creativity of heaven. In the Buddhist tale of the taming of the bull, a man is shown in the various stages of development where he must learn to tame the recalcitrant bull and where ultimately man and bull vanish are revealed as part of the same divine unity. The bull is not evil, but it is, if it is allowed to run the man, then it may lead him to destruction, for he is at the mercy of his desires. But repression, likewise, is not an answer. Man and bull must perform a dance, where each comes to respect the other. In these Eastern images, the problem of the relation between the ego and instincts is portrayed, and this problem lies at the center of Taurus's pattern of development. Other mythic stories also portray the struggle with the bull. One of the most powerful is the Zoroastrian god-man Mithras, the Redeemer, who is always portrayed in his famous cap with his hands about the bull's throat. Heracles also must conquer a bull. These motifs of the conquering and sacrifice of the bull seem to deal with submission to a greater self, and the realization that the power of the bull is not mine, but must be directed toward a more transpersonal goal. Whether we consider bull or as in the myth of Io, cow, we are faced with the same animal. The primary association with this creature is not, surprisingly, the goddess Aphrodite, who is called cow-eyed, and whose nature may tell us a good deal about the meaning of this beast, which it is Taurus's fate to encounter and tame. Aphrodite Venus has more personality and clearer outlines than virtually any other Greek goddess. She is not just an abstract concept meant to personify some dimly sensed order in the cosmos. She is terribly alive. And this quality transmits itself from the sculptures of her, which we have inherited, dating back before the Greek era to the great goddess Ishtar of the Middle East. She is gifted with generous and carnal affection and a complete lack of ambivalence about sex. Paul Friedrich, in his book on the meaning of Aphrodite, calls this sunlit sexuality in comparison with female deities such as Artemis and Athene, for whom the sexual act is equated with pollution. Where the body is a pollution to most of the Olympians, it is sacred to Aphrodite. This is in part why she is usually portrayed nude, where the other goddesses are almost always covered up. She seems to embody naked, unashamed nature. She also acts as a mediator between the world of immortals and the world of men, just as Zeus does, for she is happy to mate with mortals. Generally, a mortal man who has sexual relations with a goddess is punished by death or castration or worse. We've met an example of this in Ixion, who is punished by being bound forever to a fiery wheel for his attempt to seduce the goddess Hera. But Aphrodite is a potential lover for any god or hero who catches her fancy. In this sense, she is prepared to come into incarnation, to relate to the world of living men and earthly things. She can be looked upon in her nudity by mortals. Therefore, she is accessible to human experience, unlike gods such as Apollo and Artemis, 
who remain elusive and punish those who peer too closely. Aphrodite is an active female. She takes the active role in wooing and seduction, love and lovemaking. She's never raped or assaulted by a male. She is so powerfully sexual that this would be impossible. In no way does she resemble the victim-like women whom Zeus and the other male gods pursue, abduct, rape, and humiliate. Aphrodite is an image of relative sexual equality, a rare being for a time in history when the prevailing collective view leaned in the opposite direction. She's also the patroness of courtesans, although she presides equally enthusiastically over passionate sex within marriage. While Hera, queen of the gods, stands for the structure and moral codes which bind the institution of marriage within the collective, Aphrodite embodies its conjugal joy and fertility. Procreation, desire and satisfaction, adornment and culture, beauty and erotic arts, all these belong to her. Her lovemaking is a civilized art in contrast to the physical violence and rapacity of R.A.'s Mars. Paul Friedrich writes, The drives of sexuality are natural. On the other hand, sophisticated lovemaking is highly cultural. Aphrodite mediates between the two, puts them together, or better, she does not make them identical, but interrelates them and makes them overlap to a high degree. To put it yet another way, we can agree that she is a goddess of rapture, but ought to recognize that this rapture harmoniously blends natural and cultural ingredients. Aphrodite's gifts, however, have a double edge. The arts of love and the satisfaction of desire can unite man and woman in harmonious sexuality and a happy wedded life, but on the other hand, they can generate rivalries, jealousies, and passions that acutely threaten the relations between individuals, kinship groups, and even nations. Thus, Minos's passion for the sacred bull leads to his wife's overwhelming passion for the same bull, and the monster that results becomes the canker that rots the kingdom from within. Even the cow, which seems such a peaceable creature, can lead to chaos and destruction. In the early cosmogonies, Aphrodite has no mother, but is born of the union between the sea and the severed genitals of Uranus after he is castrated by his son Kronos. This suggests that whatever Aphrodite is, she is not maternal in the ordinary sense, although she is fertile. Perhaps it would be more appropriate to say that she is in no sense a wife, although she favors the physical joys of marriage. Friedrich suggests that she is the most solar of the goddesses. Quote, Artemis and Hera are strongly lunar, the former typically moving in the moonlight midnight air, the latter often depicted with a lunar crescent. Their symbolism has rich antecedents in old European civilization, and there is, of course, the more general psychological association between the moon and menstruation, virginity, and the female principle in general. It is Aphrodite, who more than any other goddess, is unambiguously solar in many passages, and this solarity is naturally connected with her goldenness. Note that she seduces Anchises by daylight. There is a deep-lying opposition or contrast between her sunlit sexuality and Artemis's furtive and moonlit anxiety and hostility as regards carnal love. All this paints a vivid portrait of one aspect of our bull. One may well ask why Theseus or Mithras must then subdue it, for Aphrodite seems a benign goddess with qualities which our present culture badly needs. But it is due to her wiles that the Trojan War began, and the havoc she causes is always a threat to relationship, whether on an individual or a collective one level. She is a most ambiguous goddess. In Sparta, she was worshipped as a bloody battle goddess, and her Egyptian counterpart Hathor, the cow-headed goddess, likewise was said to thrive on blood and slaughter. Perhaps we need to look again at Hitler, who not only had the sun in Taurus, but also Libra rising, and was therefore doubly ruled by Venus. The Buddhist formula seems to be a most appropriate one. Do not slay the bull, but learn to dance with it in a developing pattern of mutual respect. 
so that the bull becomes more human and the human more animal. I have met many Taurians who have attempted to cope with the potential problems of the bull, its powerful passions and its single-minded covetousness by splitting, i.e. withdrawing into the intellect in order to avoid the threat of the overwhelming senses. This is, of course, no solution. It is what Minos did by stuffing the Minotaur into the labyrinth. The body then usually rebels against the tyranny of the mind. Likewise, I have met many Taurians who are imprisoned in their senses where the bull or cow runs the man or woman, and this too satisfies neither bull nor human partner. For then we are back with King Minos who repudiates the self and attempts to possess for his own gratification what is not his with tragic results. We have so far dealt with the female aspects of the bull, but Aphrodite is part of a pair in myth, and although she is no wife in the conventional sense, nevertheless she is married to the strange god Hephaestios, who is called Vulcan in Latin and who is given to her as a husband by Zeus and Hera. Whenever gods are paired in this way in myth, I feel that something is implied about two halves of a single archetypal pattern. Although the marriage of Aphrodite and Hephaestios is an uncomfortable one, a marriage it is nonetheless, he is her, quote, right spouse. We must therefore consider him, for he can also give us insights into the nature and fate of Taurus. Hephaestus is the divine smith, and he is mirrored by the smith gods of many cultures, for he is ugly and lame. He has much in common with the Teutonic dwarves, for he is a creature of earth, and his skill lies in his artistry and his physical power. According to the tale, he was so weak and sickly at birth that his disgusted mother Hera dropped him from the heights of Olympus to rid herself of the embarrassment of such a pitiful son. I have met this sad pattern in the early lives of many Taurians whose families had hoped for something more flamboyant, more brilliant, more effervescent than the slow and earthy creature which the Taurian child so often is. Hephaestus survived this misadventure because he fell into the sea, where the sea goddess Thetis took care of him and helped him to set up his first smithy. He rewarded her kindness with many beautiful and useful objects. Eventually Hera saw Thetis wearing a lovely brooch, brooch? which Hephaestus had made, and upon finding out that it was her lost son who was the creator, summoned him back to Olympus, where she offered him a finer smithy, married him to Aphrodite, and made a great fuss of him. Eventually, they patched up their quarrel, and he even went so far to reproach Zeus for his treatment of Hera, when the king of the gods hung his wife by her wrists from heaven because she had rebelled against him. Zeus, in anger, heaved him down from Olympus a second time, and he was a whole day falling. On striking the earth, he broke his broke both legs and became lame. Afterward, he could only walk with golden leg supports. Graves says of him, quote, Hephaestus is ugly and ill-tempered, but has great power in his arms and shoulders, and all his work is of matchless skill. He once made a set of golden mechanical women to help him in his smithy. They can even talk and undertake the most difficult tasks he entrusts them to. He was up on AI way before. <laughs> and he owns a set of three-legged tables with golden wheels ranged around his workshop, which can run by themselves to a meeting of the gods and back again. This is a curious marriage between the beautiful, indolent, and mischievous Aphrodite and her ugly, ill-formed, yet very gifted spouse. She despises his ugliness and is forever unfaithful to him, yet she cannot be parted from him. I think that this pair of figures forms an uneasy core to the sign of Taurus, for there is that in the sign which possesses the marvelous skill, power, and ingenuity of Hephaestus, yet which is slow, clumsy, and unglamorous. And there is also that which embodies beauty and which despises its own physical imperfection. Whether the Taurian acts this strange marriage out through an actual partner or whether it forms an inner conflict between the idealism and the earthiness of the sign, nevertheless, this marriage is a given, a kind of fate. The ego perhaps needs to come to terms with the bestial bull, but the bull itself is divided between its coarseness and its grace. 
and all three comprise the daimon, which infuses this deceptively simple sign. That's a beautiful reading. Um, I, I so enjoy her like ability to craft through myth and metaphor um, all of these very interesting connections. Um, there were some people when I read the Liz Green section on Libra who seemed to think that I was presenting it as the gospel. And then they felt like they had to go and say that they didn't think that it was the gospel. Just so you know, you know, take it or leave it. She is one of, you know, dozens and dozens of interesting astrologers that I have developed my own understanding and relationship to the archetype of Taurus through over the years. So I don't present this like, here's the truth. And now just take it and go. No, but for your consideration, Liz Green, right? Like that. So um, a couple of the things as a Taurus rising, <clears throat> the, the dance between bull and minotaur, the, the, the taming of the ox or the bull in the Buddhist metaphor has been so like apt for myself and for, excuse me, my wife, who's a double Taurus and many people that I've seen over the years as a counseling astrologer who are working with the stellium in Taurus, Taurus rising, sun or moon in Taurus, etc. I think, for example, <clears throat> of my grandfather. My grandfather had Mars and Jupiter in Taurus, uh, right on the midheaven. And he was, uh, he, he, you know, he, he, he had a very, um, he had some stories to tell about his time in the, uh, in the military, in the war. And, uh, so that was like, you know, very Mars Jupiter kind of thing. Uh, but also he was like, you know, really, really industrious. He built a lot of stuff, um, he kept bees. He had an apple orchard. He had a Christmas tree farm. He managed to find and build artesian well ponds, find the artesian wells, and then um, dig them out and build artesian well ponds on his land. He built his own home. He built his own cabin. It was just such a Taurus in that respect. Mars, Jupiter, like I want to build stuff. He's very industrious. But he also struggled mightily with um, food, became overweight, developed, what is it called? Adult onset diabetes, the kind that can come because he wasn't eating very well. And later in life, he developed diabetes as uh, really as sort of a result of that. And I don't know, maybe genetic stuff too, but, uh, and then, um, he struggled with alcohol and with, um, I, I don't know if my grandfather ever had an affair or not. I, I suspect he probably did. Um, but at any rate, I watched him as a kid always grappling between the Minotaur and the bull. On the one hand, his relationship with the land, with nature, really was inspiring to me as a kid. He had a very soft Venusian, I mean, keeping bees, an apple orchard, a Christmas tree farm, pumpkins, and he would harvest all of it and just donate it to his church or, you know, whatever. Uh, so he, and, and people in the neighborhood would come over to get their Christmas trees from his Christmas tree farm and he wouldn't charge anything, you know, or maybe just something very like a donation type of thing. So I, I watched him just be such a, such a builder of beautiful things. And he was always outside. He was always in nature. He taught me to fish, you know, obviously before, um, when my dad was a kid, he taught my dad how to hunt, but he also was, um, he was also driven by the Taurian, like, like Venusian, like lust. 
and he was an alcoholic at one point and then had to get sober right and he was always dealing with uh dietary stuff and on and on um i have he was like i think he was as a kid before i knew anything about astrology he was my first like bull slash minotaur figure um so i think of him a lot when i when i think about what liz green was saying but i think about myself too um there's been always a, a like this cycle <laughs> and you know it's it's like really familiar to um my wife and i because she's a double taurus too we say when we've reached the place where we've turned into a minotaur we'll look at each other and we'll both be like yeah it's time to get back on the train the train where to healthy town usa <laughs> it's like just that tendency to go through patterns of product productivity and patterns of stagnation patterns of indulgence followed by patterns of moderation you know finding habits that work and keep peace and stability and ease and temperance and then losing those patterns and devolving and getting lost in the labyrinth where there's a hungry minotaur chasing me um that's been my dance as a taurus rising for sure i don't know about you guys i'd love to hear your stories um and then there's the other side where you have this kind of like dichotomy between very um, sort of uh, productive, industrious, um, but kind of like slow and stubborn and fixated on things. And that's it. When, he, when she went into the whole thing about Hephaestus, the, the smithy, right? And the kind of dichotomy between being good at stuff and productive, but like not very... Uh, uh, attractive. That's a really interesting part as well. And in fact, when I reflect, when I think about uh, my own grandfather, he was like, uh, he had like some of the grossest <laughs> like personal hygiene because he was just, he just liked being outside all the time and he was always dirty. And he, you know what I mean? Like he was always just caked and just dirt and work and he was, you know, very much like a, a bull that had been like rolling around in the mud, super productive, doing super beautiful, industrious things. He could build amazingly beautiful things. He just never seemed to be as good at like cleaning up. <laughs> I don't mean that as an offensive thing. It's just like, that's also this weird thing with Taurus where like, I'll get, and I can think about like that even in myself, like I can be hugely productive but um, some, there'll be patches of time where like I'm super productive, but I like am wearing my baseball cap rather than like, you know, doing my hair or something like, you know, just like taking care of my hair. <laughs> That's embarrassing. <laughs> but anyway, um, the other thing that I would say about Taurus is that there's this duality between being positive being possessed by something and sort of being self-possessed self-possessed to me would mean that you have a thoughtful conversation with your within yourself and your own choices and habits of behavior uh habits of indulgence uh patterns of it, your appetites so possessed on the other hand would mean that something has taken over you like i'll give you an example and let's see if i can just like turn there's Hilda. Hi, Hilda. Hilda is, um, when, when I'm in the basement doing stuff, she sits down there 
near the there's like a sliding glass door and she sits and watches squirrels look she is in heaven just like staring at the squirrels and um also like <laughs> i kind of feel bad for her you know like i uh we don't have a fence so i can't just like let her out you know <laughs> but if i'm like if i'm sitting there and I'm like, I, I'm going to leave. So I want her to come with me or I'm going to feed her, or take her for a walk or something. I need to get her attention, let's say. And I'm like, Hilda, come on, Hilda. You know, I'm not going to say it too loud because I don't want to wake her up. But if I'm like, you know, and then fine, she'll be just be like so dialed in to her instincts, right? And it, I think it would be called like a prey drive or a prey instinct or something like that. She's hungry. You know, she's like, hmm, that, that is a squirrel. <laughs> so I have to like clap. Do, 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 Hilda. And then she'll, oh, oh, there's a human. Oh, yeah. Oh, a walk. Okay, cool. Like, I'll do something else. That's the, in, in, I, the way I see that is like, there's totally someone at home with this dog. You know what I mean? And I think that's true for any animal you get to know. You're like, it's a person. And by person, I mean, it's a soul. It's a being. And they, they're, they're conscious. Like when she's like in instinctual mode, it's like she's possessed by something and I have to like, boom, boom, come on. And then she'll stop looking at the squirrel and be like, oh yeah, what are we doing? But that's in a sense, that's like what Taurus is dealing with all the time. There's always a glass window you're looking through at the squirrel where the instinctual body has just taken over. Maybe it's not a prey drive. It's more like a pleasure drive. You know, um, it's what do you want? What do you desire? what would taste good or what would feel good. It's a little bit more Venusian, uh, but it's hard to snap yourself out of that. And so another duality is this duality between self-possession and being possessed by something instinctual that you, you, it's really hard to snap out of it. Like a program that's running, that's not easy to um, come out of. Right. So anyway, these are some of the dualities inherent in Taurus through the lens of Liz Green, again, for your consideration, it's not the gospel or anything. Um, and some of my own reflections. This is what we're working with, with um, the eclipse coming up this weekend. Some of us, what we're going to go through is going to be the culmination of things that we've been working on with respect to our bodies, our desires, and the need to um, have, you know, have we tamed the, have we danced with the bull? You know, are we, are we having that uh, dance with the bull rather than trying to submit it, right? Or rather than it running the program and we can't get away from the squirrel watching window. <laughs> so I think that's the tension we're working with in a specific area of our lives. This eclipse will also amplify some of those dualities and tensions while also solidifying some of the insights and wisdom, the process of change and growth that we've gone through, and rewards for hard work because lunar eclipses bring things to fruition. It's like the fruits of the cycle are ready to appear. They're, it's the fruits going to appear on the tree. What have we grown? What are we going to taste? And what will we? What desires may we need to let go of because they're taking over or they're causing stagnation or something like that? Okay, so reading hour today, I hope it was fun, and I hope you are having a good week. Um, we will have more to come. We're going to look in particular at the signature of Mercury and Venus opposite Jupiter in this eclipse uh, that's coming up um, later this week. All right, that's it for today. Take it easy, everyone. Bye.